This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hello everyone, and welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast which focuses on playing warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Petey Pob, and today we have a two-part special. That's right, it's going to be me interviewing Mr. Salty John, one of the head judges of the Las Vegas Open. We're going to talk about what it takes for competitive 40k to go pro and take it to the next level. Also, Val visited the list doctor, Mr. Nick Brown. Nick Nanavati, he, Val Heffelfinger, he went to the list doctor to get some of that brown magic, help him out with a Canada team tournament list that he wanted worked on. It's really entertaining. It's going to be right after the advertisement for the Flying Monkeys Con. Those guys are sponsoring this episode. You guys are awesome. And if you're going to be in the area, check them out. Anyways, before we get into that, I had one quick announcement I wanted to make. I decided I want to try and use Patreon. Uh, I'm not I, I'm not planning on making it a big deal, um, but I, I did have a little project I wanted to work on that maybe we could work on as a community together. As you guys may know, the hobby track was introduced into the ITC this past week, and with it, there is a little bit of debate on whether or not we should allow painters, uh, professionally painted armies, armies that got, you know, were paid for, uh, to be allowed to compete in the ITC hobby track. Now I'm going to very simply say that I am for any army, no matter how beautiful, no matter how gorgeous it is, no matter who painted it, no matter how much money they put into it. If the army is beautiful, it deserves to be recognized. And that's because I come from a background with my dad where we compete competitively in the lowrider community. Uh, if you don't know what lowriding is, it's when you get a car, you put it on some hydraulics, lower the entire body down, and you dress it up. You paint it up. Cars look beautiful. Um, you mess with the interiors. You mess with the body. And if you ever just get a chance, Google search lowrider car shows images, um, you'll see some really beautiful works. And this knowledge, I've talked about it before on my podcast, uh, but I feel like this knowledge in particular gives me a different perspective on the argument um, in the sense that I think that it's okay to get a car or have other people work on your car, um, and it's well accepted in the lowrider community. You know, there's actually you actually get points for painting up a display that credits all the people who've worked on your car. And though it, 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 is, it, it is, there's a little bit of a stigma 
um, against people who flat out buy their cars without putting any of their work into them. In general, it's in general, people still put the effort into the car, bringing the car to the show, showing it off, going all, you know, to all these lengths with little to no recognition, no prize support to get this car to a lowrider show to show off to the lowrider community. So th- there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that go into building a car. Um, and just because a person didn't paint the car because they don't have the necessary skills to paint or they didn't work on the upholstery or the body work or the hydraulics or any of that stuff doesn't mean that the car doesn't deserve to be recognized um, and you know awarded, right? So ultimately, the owner of the car had the ultimate vision of how the car should look. And I feel like the same goes with a 40K army. Uh, when I'm personally building, getting custom models done, I actually go through three different people. I go to uh, one person to do all of my custom work on my miniatures. So if I want a kit-bashed, awesome custom miniature uh, with bits and everything, I go to one person. I say, okay, I need you guys to build me this miniature. I want them to look cool. Uh, I want it to be unique. And they build it for me. And then I go to another person to paint the miniature. I say, okay, can you please paint this miniature? I actually go to Frontline Gaming. Uh, Frontline Gaming, so I'll, I'll give them a quick shout-out. Frontline Gaming's Paint Studio. I go to Mr. Brandon Miner himself. Um, he's personally my favorite painter in our studio. I love a lot of his work. Uh, I love his style. And he, he just always seems to understand exactly the way I want the model to look. Um, his style is very clean, and I like a very clean style. And then finally, I get someone to do my base for me. Um, not that I don't like Brandon. Brandon sometimes does do my bases, uh, but there's one person in particular who just does a really good job with base work. Like, you, you know, his, uh, I'm not he does I'm not going to name him, so it's okay if I talk a little trash on him. But his miniature painting is not the best. However, uh, this individual puts out base work like I can believe. Like you, you would see a miniature and you're like, eh, this guy's an okay painter. And then you see his base and you're like, wow, this looks great. Um, and he's just really, he's really unique and he's really different with his bases. And he's also, he also mass manufactures bases for me. So he based like my entire Dark Elves army, right? Uh, which I still have to put on those bases. Sorry, buddy. Um, but the point is, is I go to three different people if I really want to work hard in getting a miniature done. So here's my proposal. I want to compete in the hobby track. I already talked to Reese. Reese said it was okay. I want to make this an, a beautiful army. I'll let if you guys like this idea, vote in the comment section down below. Uh, if you're on, if you're listening to this on YouTube, um, go to FrontlineGaming.org. Find this episode, episode 62. Uh, go to this episode. Go into the comment section and vote. Voting. I, I'm probably not going to get started on this until May, so you've got plenty of time. Go in there, pick the army. I, I don't. I want to use an army I've never used before. So don't say Space Marines or Ultramarines. Um, I'm going to use the Patreon money that you guys give me to help pay for the army. Uh, and then we're going to get a beautiful army and I'm going to take it as many tournaments as possible. I'm going to work on a display board. I'm going to work on a display, a display case that showcases all the people who've worked on the army and to give them credit where credit's due. And if I win the hobby, die to see hobby track, uh, I'm going to show off the army in its entirety. Uh, I think I will come up with the color scheme and the paint scheme, but if you have a very specific thing, like if you want to see, you know, Assassin Harlequins or, uh, I don't know, uh, Frost Tyranids, whatever theme. If you there's a particular theme you want, um, you can give me some ideas. But I just think it's a little project that I, I could definitely use, um, and I don't feel so bad um, taking the, your Patreon money and, and just um, giving you guys extra content. Uh, I just I feel like, like if I were to get that money, I'd want to really do something you know, with it that I think a lot of people would enjoy, um, that, and I'm not, I'm not a very good painter, um, I barely paint at all, actually, 
Uh, so I think it would be a cool way to just show off how how you could you know get someone who pays to paint their army. And I will I will do I will do my own work to the army. I won't just like send it off to people. I will do things like assemble miniatures. Um, I might paint like one or two guys just so you guys can laugh at them and be like, oh, that's the that's the Hormagant Pablo painted. Ha ha ha. Uh, or something. I, I will put effort into it. Obviously, I will take good care of the army. I'll buy a display case for it. I will buy uh, transportation for it. Um, and I will do my best to take it to as many tournaments as possible to get a high hobby track in it. Uh, but the most important thing is that I want to show that you can work on an army and create this masterpiece that everyone can admire and give the people who worked on it the credit that they deserve. Uh, so so I, I already got green-lighted from Reese. Reese said I could do it. Um, so now all I need to know is if you guys are interested in it. If you guys are interested in me donating a little bit to my Patreon, I haven't started yet yet. I'm trying to get feelers out there to see what you guys think. If you guys think it's a good idea or a dumb idea, let me know. Um, but it's about time this competitive 40K podcast adopted the competitive hobbying side of 40K uh, because ultimately a tournament is all about presentation and entertainment um which it, when you guys listen to the episode later on you guys will get more in-depth knowledge on uh, when i talk to salty john about all that um but i want to jump into that a little bit more so tell me what you guys think uh if you guys think it's just just a guy using his podcast fame or infamy depending on on how uh, what you think of me uh to get a free army that's cool uh, i could definitely see how you think that way and uh, i definitely don't want to just take your money and run with it like I want to create something that you guys will enjoy but I want to make sure you guys enjoy it first um, but if you think that that's perfectly fine you don't have to donate you can tell me no I don't think this is a good idea PD Pop. someone else should do it whatever uh, I did attend about eight or nine tournaments last season ITC so I do have the capabilities to go to a lot of tournaments um, and this might be something that I shoot for next next year like so 2000 the 2020 season right not the 2009 so it might be something in the far future um, but I think it'd be something really cool to show off how how the hobby track is intended to be uh, versus versus how some people might perceive it to be. Um, also, what do you guys think? Do you guys think that the hobby track should be something only people who paint their own armies should get awarded for? Or do you think it should really be a community effort? Um, because I, I do see where people are coming from in that argument in the sense that, yeah, someone can just pay to win the hobby, ITC hobby track. That's, that's, that's not cool. Um, however... Uh, on the flip side, I feel like if it's done correctly and if you get a really gorgeous army out of it and you, you see someone's artistic vision come to life in the form of a 40k army, I feel like you should be awarded for that and I feel like the community should accept that. Um, but that's just my opinion. Um, there is also, of course, uh, the other argument uh, that, that I'm going to make that's uh, basically most of the people I see who win the best painted or Renaissance men's, most of them paint their own armies anyways. Or the, the best painted armies are all people who've painted their own armies they're amazing painters like think of like kenny boucher um you, you know is israel israel with this beautiful tau army who always wins the bao painting awards every year uh michael fox you know there's guys who just paint their own armies and always win these best painted awards and we know that but they're also commission painters too um so i, I just feel like there's a little bit of a double standard if we if we kick out people who didn't pay for their work or who, if we if we shun people who did pay for their army, um, but not shun people who are like professional commission painters, but also get the fact that they're commission painters and they're supposed to be good at it. it's their job. Um, anyways, there's there's it's a really intricate little argument going on there, and that's just my two cents. So, anyways, we're gonna go jump right into it. 
I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, here I am with Mr. Salty John of LVO 40k Head Judge. In what's the opposite of infamy, John? Fami- fame, famousy, fame. <laughs> thank you, thank you yeah. very much. Famey, fame. In- infamy just sounds like it's just a cooler word. I always, I always want to use it, but you never actually mean it. Yeah. <laughs> well, or, or you know, depending on how well you did at the LVO, maybe infamy. It could, yeah, it could be. To some people, it might be infamy. But the reason why I brought Salty John on is he put up an amazing article, I think, uh, on Frontline Gaming. Uh, although I found it a bit contrarian to my taste. I'm a little bit more of a positive optimist. Salty John is a judge, and I think he's more suited to being a judge than I am because he does look at things with more of a critical eye, um, with more realistic expectations, um, which which I think is perfect for, for having this kind of mentality when having for having conversations like what we're going to have. Um, so it's great. Thank you for coming on, John. You're welcome. Uh, so we'll talk about your article later. First, I want to talk about your LVO head judge experience to show the listeners exactly who it is they're listening to. Because uh, at this point, I-, I would say that you're probably one of the most successful judges, 40K judges um, right now in, in the world. Um, you- you've-, you've head judged, <laughs> you have- you've head judged the LVO two years in a row. Yeah. Um, or I guess co head judged one year. This year you definitely took more of a leading role with Travis stepping down. Um, but you've judged at the LVO four years. Did you do the flamingo? No, I didn't. No, I've done two years right. as a judge, and I I played in the very first one. So I missed one LVO. I missed the flamingo year. Okay, so you missed. Okay, so so you played into it two LVOs, or you've judged in two LVOs. Mm-hmm. You've head judged one. Um, but these aren't the only events you've judged. Um, uh, the LVO is just the biggest event. Well, I mean, I help out at the local RTTs with mm-hmm. judge calls and stuff, and I run leagues at the store and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's really my judging experience. I was brought on um, to help with the last uh, – uh, with the 2017 LVO or 2016 LVO mm-hmm. um, because they needed help. And I know the rules. And Reese knows that I, I know the rules because I write for them on, on Frontline Gaming. And, uh, and I was trusted by Travis and Adam because, like I said, I've run leagues – and um, at a store for years. I used to work at a, a local um, gaming store and ran all their 40K leagues for several years. Uh, and I've recently got back into running leagues too. So that's that's where like running comes from, the the, the events and the judging. Um, okay. And I'm not technically the head judge. We're all head judges. I think that that perception might come from the fact that I'm, I'm more of a – I'm more out there, particularly online, than the other judges are. Uh, like I put my face out there more. Like I'm always the guy that does the video. For the last right. two years, I always do the, the pre-video about what, what to expect of the LVO and what judges might do and stuff like that. So um, I don't think it's fair to call me the head judge, um, but I, I think that I'm more recognizable than the others simply because I'm, I have the time and the willingness to put myself out uh, into the different social media mediums to, to, to get the word out more. You're you're right, and and I, I I'm not I agree I'm not giving enough credit to Danny Adam Chris and the rest of your judging staff who all do a phenomenal job as well running the LVO. Um, I'd say that you guys are probably the most professional judging staff in to any 40k event I've ever been to. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. We we're, we get along really well, which is very important. That is. Uh, so you have a lot of judging experience, mm-hmm. uh, and you also, more importantly, have a lot of judging experience um, with with uh dealing with the public 
or like you said, you were the most vocal judge. Um, so you deal, you take the the online, the dumb online questions, the the, <laughs> yes. the yeah. tidal wave of, of bad question after <laughs> bad question. Um, though it might not be you answering all of them. I'm sure you guys take turns on them. Um, I do know that that you you do take you do answer a lot of questions online on average. Yeah, we generally um, do things by committee, um, mm-hmm. and then I'm I'm kind of just a lot of the times the person who, who conveys the message. But we do a lot of stuff by committee. Even if you're at if you're at the LVO, you'll you'll have I'm sure noticed this. Very rarely did I ever come to a table and just rule on something, um, especially something that really mattered. We like to do things by consensus. We're all there. It's pretty easy to go and talk to somebody else. Hey, this is what I think. Do you agree? Yes, no. And and usually there's at least two. Uh, there's usually three of us involved in any major decision uh, judge call. Um, okay. That's just the way we like to do it. We, we do the same thing when we get questions online if they get emailed to us um oftentimes things that get emailed to frontline gaming throughout the year um every now and then reese will come to us uh, in in our group and be like hey this thing what do we do with this what was our reaction for this at lvo and we'll talk about it there too like we're together year round in a chat um hashing things out and talking about the new stuff and so i think that's where that tight-knit kind of grouping for our judging group comes from is that we really invested in this year round um even though we're not judging year round necessarily. Okay, great. So you've you've been around the the scene, the 40k competitive scene for uh, as long as I've been around. But um, specifically for its growth period um, between the the kind of I don't want to say the heyday seventh edition, but when seventh edition looked promising to the fall of seventh edition, and then all the way through <laughs> almost almost the the complete the completion of eighth edition. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you have seen the 40 K tournament trend and you have seen the 40 K oh, yeah. tournament scene grow. I've seen, I've seen it all. I was, I was at the original Barry open. Uh, I, I played a lot in fourth edition tournaments, fifth edition. Uh, I quit near the end of sixth actually mm-hmm. uh, from a, a, a bunch of different things. One was, I really wasn't happy with where the game was at um, about midway through sixth. And I ran out of time. Both my kids at that time were very young. Mm-hmm. And you know, pl- finding time for 40k with a one-year-old and a three-year-old—I mean, come on, that's not, it's not <laughs> easy. So, uh, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to step back. Uh, and then I came back in seventh. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been around for quite a bit of it and seen the tournament scene really take off. Uh, you know, I've watched Frontline Gaming build their events from the bear, the very first Barry Open. I've gone to the vast majority of those. I think I've only missed two. Um, so I've really seen that, and, and particularly the West Coast scene. Um, I think the furthest I've traveled is Texas. I went to War Games Con before um, in Austin. So, I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've been around for a lot of it. I've seen a lot of it. Right on. So because you've, you're so experienced in the competitive 40K scene, how what do you see? How do you see the scene growing in the next three? Like a realistic Salty John, like <laughs> most accurate prediction you can. Where, where do you see competitive 40K going in the next three years? Um and this is assuming GW stays at its pace. They don't. There's no crazy. We're gonna fiat here. Fiat is a debate term, meaning, uh, <laughs> meaning basically things are gonna stay the status quo and yeah. uh, nothing, nothing crazy is gonna change. So there's no no weird things like. But right. GW it's would a, never. It's do assuming this. all things are equal, basically. Yes. Yeah. So so assuming three years, where do you see the competitive 40k scene going? Yeah. So like uh, like you said, assuming all things being equal, I I see it just continuing to grow kind of exponentially. I mean, I'm not sure exactly where you would cap something like the LVO in terms of players. 
uh, or even if you would consider capping it. I mean, that's as the judge, that's not my call. Uh, uh, we help organize the tournament, but you know, Reese is like, Hey, we're going to have 500 players or we're going to have a thousand players. Cool. Like that's what we do. We just, you know, change the judging staff to do that. Um, but I, I don't see there being a, an end in sight really to what it could do. I think that the game will only continue to become more and more popular as the codexes are released and as we get a full game. So, I mean, once the, and by full game, I mean like every faction's got their codex. Uh, and we're not relying on the indexes anymore for full armies. And we're very close to that. Uh, and I think that once that hits and everything gets kind of fleshed out and uh, you see this constant move of the meta based on the FAQs and the chapter approved, that the game's going to remain healthy. And as the game remains healthy, these tournaments will only continue to grow. And I think that you're going to see things like LVO and Adepticon and Nova. Um, I mean, those are the big three that I always think of as the big three. Uh, I can only see those getting bigger. Uh, but they're also going to become more problematic to run. And they're also going to become more problematic to judge, mm -hmm. uh, particularly as the live streaming thing continues to take off. Uh, I mean, we we uh, I, I also work for TFG Radio and uh, we do live streams every now and then and Frontline Gaming does live streams and you guys do live streams at the events and live streaming is not easy, first of all. Uh, it's it's a complicated process to live stream a full tabletop game and you guys keep getting way better at it all the time. I mean, over at Frontline Gaming, that, that they've got an amazing setup. But particularly at the tournaments, there's this there's a, an aspect of it that I think is going to be the, the biggest stumbling block to 40k growing to become something that's massively well-known throughout the world uh, by a lot of people in terms of gaming. And I think that stumbling block is the uh, fidelity of the game when viewed by an online audience. Uh, so fidelity being like um, the accuracy or the faithfulness with which the game is played uh, in front of a live audience. And we've seen that be problematic before on live streams and not just at the LVO, but at multiple different events. And I think that that's kind of where I was going with that article, which is 40K has a great place it can go to. Same with Age of Sigmar, actually. I don't really play Age of Sigmar much, but I watch it. And I think it's in a very similar spot. And it's going to continue to grow exponentially also. But it's got this similar issue, which is when it's got an audience and the audience can watch and the audience can pick apart everything that's going on, you know, there's tricks that can be played with camera angles that make the audience think one thing and then they might hear something slightly different and, you know, maybe the players agreed to something else before the match and all that kind of stuff needs to kind of get hammered out in order for the game to grow uh, to the level at which I think it can get to, which is probably something that's known internationally as something you can play. Now, I don't know if you're ever going to get to the point where you can make a living at it, but I think that it could become something that is widely, more widely viewed than it is now, but that we have to get over that stumbling block. And I use the term stumbling block a lot in the article that you, you referenced, um, particularly because it's a great way of thinking about these particular issues. It's literally something you're going to stumble over in the process of getting to this next level or next point in, in 40k. Uh, yeah, so so you actually segued your article for me perfect, brilliantly. It's almost like you've done this before. <laughs> but um, you're, you're absolutely right. So you talk about this, you talk about this, um, uh, this concept of fidelity in 40k and essentially yeah. um it, it, stop me if i'm explaining it incorrectly but essentially you're saying that because 40k is such a human game it's such a it, it's inherently 
flawed in the way we play it, the way the game is designed, the way it's portrayed to the audience, um, that there's never going to be something as clear and perfect as concise as a video game. A perfect example being if you're playing Overwatch, uh, there isn't uh, an option for players to just run through a wall wall to a spawn point and gun each (laughs) other down. Um, And then the players go like, no, we're not going to use the spawn point. We're not going to go through that wall, guys, right? Like, we're going to be smart. Uh, Or a better example, you played Halo 2 back in the day. Yeah. Halo 2 back in the day, if you played the old zombies mode, <laughs> uh, the old zombies mode Halo 2 was not you die and you automatically spawn as a zombie. It was a custom game that you played with like 16 buddies. And when you died, you had to actually switch your teams. And there was like an honor system, right? It was like, oh, okay, it's an honor system. And then there were more internal rules added on there. Like uh, you can't use shotguns. You can only use pistols or when you can't pick up weapons. And there's so many different house rules um, that eventually if you were to go into a random zombies game, you wouldn't get the same game every time. And there'd be a lot of, it'd be a hard game to stream and it'd be, ultimately not a pro game it'd be more a casual thing which is i kind of equate 40k as a halo 2 zombies game whereas uh halo 3 with an official zombies mode um where everything happens automatically and you take the aspect of players making decisions out of the zombies mode you actually yeah. have a legitimate mode that could be streamed by twitch by twitch streamers all the time and actually be enjoyed Right, Correct. so so that's that's the the argument of fidelity in 40k, uh, and the argument you're making in your in your article, and that that's the reason why 40k, uh, will never exist, will never become up, or that's the biggest stumbling block to competitive 40k or pro 40k. Yeah, that's that's definitely the biggest part of being become pro 40k, and I mean, <clears throat> nobody can play a perfect game of 40k. Like right. we we're running a league at our store. I played last night. Uh, I'm playing a list that I, I'm kind of familiar with. I've taken it to a couple of things, and it's Grey Knights and, and Astra Militarum. So it's you know it's kind of a kind of a weird janky list, anyways. But even last night, I'm playing against uh, Jeff Poole. Do you remember Jeff? He came in uh, eighth, eight. I think, at yep. LVO. Yeah, he was in the top eight, and um, he's on our team. And I'm playing Jeff, and at one point, Jeff's like, "I don't think that's how that thing works in my list." It was it was something with the Dread Knight, uh, Grandmaster Dread Knight. I'm like, "Well, I think it is." And we looked it up, and I was like, "Oh yeah, you know, what, Jeff, you're right." Uh, but, you know, six, six, seven games into this army and uh, a head judge from the LVO and I'm getting called out because I'm playing something wrong. And he's right. I mean, it's hard to play the game perfectly. Yeah. And, and it, you, it, it's it's practically impossible. Yeah. And you even go so far as in your article. And I actually really like this. So that was a very funny comment in your article that everyone cheats in 40K. That the judges, the audience, the players, uh, the cast, the announcers, everyone cheats in 40K. And that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah. When you... It's a simple concept as if a player like shoots a hundred guardsmen at one cultist left, and mm-hmm. the the player who sh- takes the cultist off the board, he's cheating right then and there because he's he's assuming that all a hundred dice are going to hit him. And obviously they will, right? It's like duh, right. common sense. However, that that isn't something you would do in Overwatch or in Magic Online, right? If you play an infinite combo in Magic Online, you keep playing that combo and you keep clicking through everything over and over and over and over again. Um, though in a real magic game, you would just assume to have won the game if you go infinite. You wouldn't have to yes. go through the motions every time. Right. Um, so, so yeah, there there is uh, in a vacuum there there is uh, always cheating going on in a forty k forty k game, and I don't think I've ever played a forty k game where I haven't cheated, quote unquote. And then that's that's important because that's what breaks down communication and the entertainment value. Um, and I agree with that. I think I think that's something that we're all we're always going to have to deal with as uh as 40k uh, 40k entertainers I want to say cuz cuz we ultimately <laughs> ultimately you 
me, Reese, the Daves, we're putting on a show for the audience. We are all we are all doing our part to entertain Twitch streamers because the definition of pro 40k is, and I'm defining it as in this podcast, uh, the definition is is you have sponsors giving their money because of the views on a live stream for a 40k tournament. And that right. money is is directly causing the event to grow and uh, is a, is correlated with the event's professionalism. Yeah. Right. So so mm-hmm. obviously sponsors wouldn't invest their money in something like a uh, a shit show, right? They, exactly. For lack of a better word. Well, and that's one of the things that, you know, I'm I'm talking about it as a, as a stumbling block is because you're not going to get people sponsoring stuff if they don't think the game is being played in a legitimate fashion. You know, they don't they don't want their products associated with a giant chat stream where everybody's screaming about this cheating that's going on. Right. You know, even whether whether it is or not. So, like, there was a great example from the LVO this year where there was a game where the the chat was swearing up and down that this guy's list was illegal and he was cheating this way and that way. And it turned out that there were just some typos. And, you know, I, I went on the stream and I went on with Dave and I walked the people who were watching through what these typos were and why the list was not actually illegal and should he have been more careful typing it up and yes, but you know, these kind of things. Right. But a sponsor is not going to want to have that kind of thing associated with their product. And if you're not, these, these tournaments can just keep getting exponentially larger, right? But at some point, the people who make them make these events will want to have some kind of a back end amount of money where it makes it worth their while. I'm saying they're going to make millions of dollars off these things like it's, you know, the pro circuit for Overwatch League, you know, or whatever. But but it needs to be worth their while to have the headache of organizing a thousand player event. You yes. know, if you say you double the LVO size. And and part of what's going to make it worth it is if they have these sponsorships and these types of things. And so that's why I think that that is such a big stumbling block in terms of like the legitimacy of the game being played. Okay. So so uh for the for those of you listening, um I am going to argue now uh, because I do disagree with with the not not the main concept of what John is mm-hmm. saying because I think you can't argue that because it's true. Right. Uh, however, uh, I'm going to specifically disagree with John with John's examples that he uses, uh, and how basically if you were to look at other events or compare 40k to other entertaining uh, competitive events, um, you could actually very easily make it a uh, pro game. So bear with me, John, and yeah, no and the audience. I, I it's a little bit lengthy of an argument, um, but it all centers around one core concept. Don't compare 40k and any tabletop games to video games. The video game market is massive. Magic: The Gathering's like, for example, this weekend, Star City Games, the Milwaukee Open, and and the the GP Seattle uh, were top out at less than 8,000 Twitch streamers. Right, that that's cool for 40k. That's awesome. Uh, you know the Pro Pro Tour Fate Reforged peaked at 25,000. Worlds on average peaks about about 50 to 60,000 Switch Twitch viewers, which is really good for Magic Magic Gathering. Those are amazing numbers, and for board games, for tabletop games, those are insane numbers. But if you were to take those 50,000 those 50,000 views and transfer it over to an Overwatch stream, like your average Overwatch streamer is not going to is going to laugh at 50,000 numbers. And then when you compare it to an Overwatch World Championship, right? So if the the World Championship for Magic draws 50,000 Twitch or Twitch viewers, imagine what the World the Overwatch World Championship brings, it brings hundreds of thousands, right? So so already you're looking at massive numbers and I don't think that even the biggest tabletop game their numbers pale in comparison to esports, the newest esport games, games like Overwatch. No, you do say that 
Overwatch is designed to be a professional game. It is designed to be streamed and, and be, you know, this big entertaining experience. Um, it's still a relatively new game and it, it dwarfed Magic the Gathering numbers instantaneously, right? Just by being a new game. And so don't compare them to esports. Essentially, that's what I'm saying. I think you should compare them, however, to real life sports, uh, baseball and football. And I'm going to explain why. There's really two reasons. One, uh, using baseball as an example, baseball is, uh, I don't think we can argue with the numbers that baseball draws. Obviously, it has a history. So obviously, baseball is going to draw large millions and millions of views, right? It's baseball. It's the thing I get. It, it's America's pastime. However, <laughs> it's boring to watch. It, it, it for me personally, um, and the numbers are going down. So it's not. It's yeah, not I this agree. amazing. Watching it on TV perfect, is a little difficult, right? And also, baseball has elements that uh, fidelity elements like 40k does. For example, hitboxes for uh, Empire hitboxes. Every single pitch in every single baseball game, it comes down to human error. And an umpire has to create this hitbox, and that's actually something that baseball fans don't like. It's something they complain about on the regular. However, they still watch baseball, mm-hmm. right? They still, and I would, I would kill for even a tenth of baseball's numbers um, for the LVO. <laughs> I, I'd kill for maybe even a hundredth of their numbers. Yeah. I wouldn't care, right? Like I, I'd yeah. love it. It'd be great. So, so baseball has elements of fidelity in it. Yes, it's more polished than 40k. I agree with that. Uh, they are also well funded uh, and and well established. So going over to football, uh, American football, specifically the NFL, um, you also have elements of human error that make the game more exciting. Uh, think of a, an NFL snap, right? If you were to get your buddies, 11 of your, uh, 10 of your closest friends, go out to the street and run a play. Snap, play, start to finish. You would get it wrong like uh, 99 times out of 100. It, it, like The ball would drop, uh, someone would run the wrong way. It would just, it would be a pain. Um, mm-hmm. And that the NFL snap has limitless... Uh, margins of hu- margins for human error. That's what makes fo- uh, football really entertaining. Is it, there's this high level of fidelity, and it, there's so much fidelity that football players have to practice this thing thousands and thousands of times a week, like like a snap for a kickoff, right? They have to practice this thousands of times a week to get it perfectly, and even then, it still goes wrong, right? There's still human errors. Like there's like you get the Mark Sanchez butt fumble, which is very much equivalent to, uh, you know, Tony got Tonyed. Right, like this, this human <laughs> error that that lost him the game that everyone went crazy for. Uh, so, so my argument is essentially, if we focus on on creating a professional league or a professional system like the those sports, um, they focus on announcers, sponsorship, characters. Uh, you know, you have your Odell Beckham Juniors um, and your A Rods, uh, and they focus on uh, unless it being um, more about skill. Because um, but there's skill elements, but more about it being a spectacle or this big grand thing. Uh, and there's obviously there's elements of tribalism. You root for your home team, and I think that that is the direction we have to go in order to counter uh, the fidelity argument. Essentially, um, now I I did say a lot of things, so John, I'm, I'm gonna let you respond. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> I mean, basically the way I'm looking at that is the the. The fidelity issue for me, it comes down to the players playing 40K are kind of on a a much different scale in terms of the rules they have to follow than anybody in any professional sports. Uh, You know, if you take a look at the average number of pages of rules in a codex and you combine that with all the rules from 
the, the 12 pages of rules from the core book and the chapter approved. You're talking about a player that's got to understand a thousand pages or more of rules in order to play the game with the type of fidelity that the players in the NFL have to do uh, when they are going to play their downs. So even something like a long snapper who's got to practice that long snap and get that long snap perfect so that it's within the rules and it also works with the um, the guy who uh, catches the long snap. I can never remember the guy, the placeholder. Um, <laughs> and then the kicker, you know, all those guys have to work in concert with another and make the rules work. But that's all a physical thing that you can practice over and over. Whereas the rules are not necessarily a physical thing you're practicing over and over. The rules are like a mental exercise. And I, th- I think that there's a fundamental difference when it comes to pro sports being played in a as much as a legitimate fashion as possible within their rules and 40K the same way because the rules are smaller and more concise. Uh, I believe the NFL's rule book has something like 90-ish pages of rules. You know, and, and and a lot of those rules are for very specific instances that very specific players and then very specific officials are in charge of. So, like, uh, you think about something like the Flategate where the uh, the balls for uh, the Patriots weren't inflated right or whatever, right? Or they were deflated. Whatever the case may be, who cares? The, the point is there's a very specific person in charge of inflating the balls to a specific level of PSI. And there's a very specific person who is in charge of checking those things. Uh, and so... When that went wrong, there was very specific people who were, you know, culpable for those actions not being taken in the correct way. In 40K, it's literally two players and then also maybe a judge who's watching the game if it's like a very big thing at a live stream or whatever else. That's only three players having to know the thousand pages or more of rules backwards and forwards well enough to play the game to a level where it's not something wrong every other minute. You know, or something going drastically wrong, which would be like, you know, the 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 nightmare scenario. Somebody plays an entire thing totally wrong, and that changes the course of the game. And none of those three people caught it because it's a nuanced rule that maybe the three of them aren't even thinking of at the moment. But somebody at home can rifle through their rule book real quick on their computer and and point it out. Um, so I think that that's where there's a fundamental difference. And I don't totally disagree with you that there's going to be a certain amount of error that's going to have to be acceptable. And that could be acceptable. Like, I don't think that, like, I like to use the term, you can't play a perfect game of 40K. I use that all the time. Um, even before I wrote this last article, I, I've talked about this concept before that you can't play a perfect game of 40K. I don't believe that you have to play a perfect game of 40K for it to become something that is uh, viewed as legitimately professional. The, right. What I do see as an issue is you have to find where the balance is for what is an acceptable amount of mistakes that can be made in a game. And you also have to find, you also have to communicate that to the audience. So the hitbox thing is a great example, Pablo, uh, that you brought up. Um, the, so the hitbox is a great example of something that is imperfect, but it is relatively accepted by the audience that it is an imperfect part of the game mm-hmm. you know uh and and that's probably just the nature of technology progressed over time slowly with baseball i mean you know the hitbox 
you could barely tell where it is on some of those old television sets, you know. I remember watching baseball back in like, you know, the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s on those those tube televisions and you could barely tell where the ball went into the, the mitt, you know. So like you'd be like, oh, that looked outside to me, but it's so grainy and now things are so high definition. They put the little box there, right? And, they, and you know, they, they overlay it and you watch the trajectory of the ball as it goes in on the replay and all this stuff. But because the basis was there that the umpire makes the ruling and that it's just final and that's it and it's an accepted part of the game that you, you don't have those people who, you know, they're like, eh, yeah, I hate the fact that the hitbox is not like uh, it's not something that's legitimately done every single time the same way, but it's accepted because it was part of it before you could do you could see certain things Bef- bef- competitive 40K being streamed in particular comes in in the middle of this technology everything's high def um, people don't necessarily understand that camera angles might be off and so might show that somebody moved something too far when in fact they didn't uh, and the, all these other factors are involved and so it's going to take more work for uh, judges and event organizers and the community at large to come to a consensus about just how much or just how perfect or imperfect really they're willing to allow the game to be played uh, at a competitive level or a professional level. And also the, they have, people have to accept the idea that the judge can't be a full-time NFL style referee or, or MLB umpire that there's, it is, it, the game is far too complex in terms of the amount of rules and interactions for anybody to really know it well enough to be able to like throw a flag, uh, and, or to be able to throw the flag every time. Right. So there'd be a difference. I don't think that I'm not one of those people who thinks that the judge has to be 100% passive. You know, there are people out there who say the judge's role is to just be a passive person and not interject in the game. I'm not one of those, but what I, I, I caution people against constantly is the judge can't throw the flag correctly every single time. NFL referees can't throw the flag correctly every single time. You know, <laughs> but but the but the people watching those streams want the game played to a certain standard and and communicating what that standard should be and and i mean figuring out what that standard should be is going to be something that we have to do as a community um, and we can't just like jump past that step you know we, we have to take these things in order and we have to do them in a way that makes sense and so i guess i'm a bit of an incrementalist when it comes to that i want to say we take our time and do it do it the right way rather than jump straight into something that's not feasible because we didn't take the steps to decide, is it feasible, or even take the steps to get there. Maybe what I'm saying is wrong. Maybe it is legitimately possible to have these things judged and played in a much more perfect way than what I'm thinking. But unless we take it step by step, we're, we're not going to know how far we can get. Right. And and I agree with you 100%. I, I do think we need to take steps, the steps necessary to show our audience that we're putting on a good professional, as fair as we possibly can show. Uh, mm-hmm. Though I do think that we are lucky in the sense that a lot of our audience, a lot of people watching the Twitch streams, have played 40K in some capacity and are yeah. fully aware of of how much fidelity a game can have, right? Mm-hmm. And that a game can, especially if we make that crystal clear, say like, listen, this is an imperfect game. Just like football. Football, the, with human error, football is an imperfect game. So much so that players have to in, invest thousands of hours to be as perfect as possible. And even then they are not perfect right? Uh, you could run the same play, NFL play, over and over and over and have a different outcome every single time, right? So so I think that we, we have that advantage um, and I, I do agree with you. I think that we need to 
we, we need to take the steps necessary to ensure that maybe it's something as simple as like making sure every list is correct and also the players here's this is a specific set of rules uh maybe having like a judge council or something like the dci judges like what magic has where the, the magic judges have this core rule set that they always follow so we always know what to do in like 90 percent of situations or, or mm-hmm. maybe 100 percent of situations that judges can control um but I kind of I want that level of like I I feel like that level of fidelity it can be skipped or can be removed maybe made a less stumbling block and more like a like a tripping a tripping wire or, or not even a tripping wire like a a tripping uh, bump or something I don't know, something sure. less than a stumbling I mean, block really the the consistency with which these things are done is important yeah, I agree so it, like eventually what's going to have to happen if you really want things to be a pro forty k is the organizers of all the different events will have to figure that out. Yes. Um, they're they're going to have to sit down and figure out how consistently do you want this game played and to what level do you want players to be like obedient to the rules and you know, and how how faithful do the judges need to be to the exactness with which things are going to be done. Right. And we're not, and and we're not here that, to... And I think that, that the, uh, the concept of the gentleman's agreement is really going to be really important to that for this game. Um, yeah. I think there there is a certain gentleman's agreement for all those sports that you talked about. You know, the players enter that arena or, or stadium or whatever the case may be with the understanding that the player across from them is going to behave in a certain way. Right. No clipping. Uh, and you, you can get a player like uh, like Indomitian Sue who <laughs> people like they just they don't like that guy because he's not. Maybe he's not outright cheating. Maybe he's just being a little dirty, but he's breaking that gentleman's agreement that that guy playing across from him has come to the field with. Like, there's a certain amount of dirty play that's going to happen. Uh, you know, water polo is a great example of that. Like, the stuff that goes on underneath the water in a water polo match with the kicking and stuff, it's crazy. Yeah. But, like, that's accepted. That's what's understood is going to happen in that sport. And it's only the players that go beyond what that agreement is with the other players that then get that bad rep. Right. And I think that the, the tournament organizers as a whole for 40K will eventually need to come to some sort of um, consensus on what they want that gentleman's agreement to be and how much of a role it should or shouldn't play and how much it should or shouldn't be policed by the judge. Right. And, and we're, we're not going to, we're not going to, I'm sorry guys, but we're not going to talk about that anymore on this podcast. That is a, that is a whole topic that could spend, we could spend hours and hours and hours on um, that we need, we need the best minds in 40 K tournament history on. Right. So we're not going to jump into that anymore. Um, But I want to go back to what you said in the first half of your argument or your rebuttal against me. Um, When you talked about NFL players not having to learn uh, rule book like like the 40k rule book rule set and i agree with you N- you know that 90 page nfl rule book they can't even remember it and it's only 90 pages like even the referees don't remember <laughs> everything right you remember right. the the um the the backup referees or the um during the referee strike yeah it was the college ones they brought in yeah 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 it was it was a disaster and and nfl players forget rules in the rule book all the time they run into their own end zones um you know, run out of bounds in their own end zone, give free safety. Like it's just tons of examples of NFL players making gaffes and forgetting the rule book. And that's a fair argument. I think that's that's something you can definitely bring up. However, um, I think it's unfair to say that NFL players don't uh, put as much work and time into their into their playbooks as 40k players do, right? So if you take example Tom Brady, Tom Brady doesn't actually doesn't actually know the Patriots book 
every single season. They actually design a new playbook with thousands of plays, maybe not thousands, hundreds of plays that Tom Brady has to memorize with thousands of possible combinations, mm-hmm. uh, with the pre-snap, the pre-snap calls, audibles, uh, game scenarios, second game scenarios, third game scenarios. Um, th- you can go online and just look at what NFL quarterbacks have to do. And keep in mind, yeah, those, the quarterback has to know all that. But even running backs and and uh, linemen and it, pretty much everyone on on the on the team, offense and defense, um, and to some degree special teams, uh, they have to remember at least ninety percent of that playbook. And when they don't remember that, it can be disastrous, right? Like if you look at Joe Theismann uh, when Lawrence Taylor took him out and ended his career, that was a botched that was a botched line call uh, on a lineman who just forgot the play that he did and he was just like i'm just gonna block this guy because he went into uh basically went into uh autopilot mode just blocked the first guy let lawrence taylor through lawrence taylor took out joe theisman you have one of the most tragic endings to a great career ever right so it's it's that error that human error is huge and i think that that's important to keep in any game is that element of human error and that's what sets aside players um, who who take the time to learn everything and become really cerebral um, in 40K and the NFL. So the reason why I'm saying this is I think that if, if 40K players uh, put the time and dedication into their 40K games as much as NFL players did into, into NFL, and I realize that that's an unfair comparison because NFL players are getting paid millions of dollars to yeah, I mean, do the same play over. Yeah, I mean, 40K is not a job. Right, right. The, I, football's a job. However, however... There are 40k players who put in a ridiculous amount of hours into into 40k, and they don't need to put as many hours into 40k as NFL players have to do put into the NFL because the NFL players have that physical aspect that 40k players don't have to worry about. Um, so, oh well, no, I wouldn't say that at all. So, so there's, I think there's that, some physical you know, the physical aspects, aspects of the game. But let, let me are, finish. Are, are also there. You're, you're right. I, I agree with you. There are physical aspects, though. The NFL uh, 40k players aren't getting called to make like one-handed catches, tiptoeing in the line behind, <laughs> jumping over like seven-foot guy. Like, the, sure. There, there's there's comparisons there, and there's definitely physical activity involved in 40k. And anyone who says otherwise has never played like nine rounds at a tournament. Especially if you're playing um, over a, a like an army of 120 models, right? Like there, there's definitely physical activity involved. Um, Alex Harrison said it best um, when he played his warp spiders. When I interviewed him with a list tech article two years ago when he won the LVO, and that you need to be a young, fit guy to play this army and to do well at a tournament. Like your back is going to kill you. You need to eat well. You need to take care of yourself. And that's true. So my point is, is if you if more 40k players were to take the game seriously uh, and I don't know how we could get them to do that. We could incentivize them. We could just, I, I'm doing my part in um, making player, like giving players their, their due, uh, I guess, fame in the spotlight or, uh, you know, time in the limelight uh, when they do perform well, um, because I want to show them that their efforts are, were not for granted. They were, they were actually warranted. Um, but anyways, if players take the game more seriously, I feel like, like that is the closest step necessary to make, to making the game better. Right, because ultimately, if you look at these flaws, like these flaws in the inter- in 40k entertainment, things like when Bajramovic uh, left the Nova final table, right, or or the Tony got Tonyed, or or the list gaffes, um, or any of the other problems with Twitch streams that that draw players away or draw uh, uh, viewers away from Twitch streams, it all can be mitigated or eliminated completely if the players that made those gaffes took the game more seriously. Right, and that w- what you're going down the road of is is a pro league. Yes. So what you're talking about is you you want there to be a group of players who 
play this game at a professional high level. And so what that means then is is the the direction of the game changes. Yes. So you have to go away from this open format that's the you know the most popular format. And so that's going to be a, again a question for TOs. Do you move to a closed format, an invitational format like the Nova Invitational, and that's what you stream? Or do you allow it to be open, and by allowing it to be open, you're going to have to accept that certain amount of the game not being played to that same standard? No, I'm because you can't, you, guarantee, you can't guarantee that the top eight of the LVO is going to be eight pro-level players. Oftentimes, it's going to be. It's like, you know, it's like professional poker. Right. The, the, the World Series of Poker, the top table might be all pros, but you might have some amateurs in there derping around and throwing all the pros off. Uh, yes. Now, that's a game that can be played 100% <laughs> with fidelity because you're cheating at that. You're getting thrown out of Vegas. <laughs> right. But, um, but so that's another thing that's like a format issue, you know? Yeah. Like, so what you're saying is you, you want somebody like a pro league, and I get that. And, now, like, that would be really cool. Um, but then well, you're also on, hold, losing hold. that other cool aspect of, like, of having a bunch of, like, amateurs yes. getting their shot to. Now, now, hold on. So so you're right, and that's what I sense that I want now. Um, the reason why I wanted to cut you off there is there's actually already successful games that are doing what I want to be done. So this is so I I do want a pro league, but my proposal isn't a pro league. It's actually something like what Fantasy Flight Games does with X Wing or what mm-hmm. Magic the Gathering does with with tournaments. And I'm really sorry mm-hmm. for cutting you off there, John, but I didn't want my viewers to think that I didn't have a plan in place. So that's what I was saying. <laughs> right. Sorry. Sure. But um. So. So with Magic the Gathering, they have a Grand Prix system and a Pro Tour system. Yeah. So with the Grand Prix system, uh, a Magic the Gathering Grand Prix is an open invitation to play Magic at a tournament where anyone can play. It can be thousands of players, right? You have a day two. If you make the day two, you're generally more of an above average player. And then it cuts to a top 16, to a top eight, uh, to a day three, which if you do a day three of Grand Prix, you're a really good player. Uh, and then if you win, you get a bid to a Pro Tour. So the Pro Tour, that's that's supposedly the Magic the Gathering elite, right? These are the best of the best players. They all had to earn their way to this big tournament, this Pro Tour, uh, with with bids, with qualifying, maybe by winning world, the World Championships in the past. Uh, but these players are supposed to be the most serious Magic the Gathering players in the game. So with the Pro Tour, you, there is an expected level of professionalism, and there is an expected level of caliber of player that you expect to see at an event. So with a GP, and the reason why I said, the reason why I brought up GP Seattle and their numbers with the eight thousand views, the GP had like I think triple or tr- almost triple what wor- the players what Worlds brings, right? So it's a bigger tournament, but it had significantly less views because it was a Grand Prix and it was considered less professional and more, it would be more, uh, not casuals, but there'd just be less quality play and less quality viewing at a Grand Prix as opposed to the world champions where you have the best of the best. So I think you can port that over to 40k and, and at fantasy flight games, X-Wing does the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that, that the world championship, the world's that big, that big pro tour caliber, uh, series of events with like Nova, we can give one to Nova, Adepticon, uh, the London GT, right, et cetera, et cetera. You can you can have all that and then have a World Championships while still not excluding the rest of the 40k tournament community, right? Yeah. I, I think they. I do mean, it that well. makes sense, and that would be a cool concept, and I think <laughs> that would be worthwhile trying out. And I think that when you get to that level, then yes, we, we we can start to have those changes that we've been discussing, and you can have that more professional level game that we've been discussing too, without necessarily losing that aspect of the game that's considered to be like the coolest part, which is, Hey, anybody can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. So, but 
to get there i to get there back to your point um we need to we need to judges need to step up um you know, we need to basically just step up, all of us, as a community. Uh, we need to take this game more seriously. Uh, we need to we need to recognize the fact that we are never going to be an eSport um, and that we are never going to be a perfect video game. Um, and we need to uh, support tournaments, all that stuff. Uh, if you're a cheater, stop cheating. If you're a <laughs> yes, TO, please. stop letting your players cheat. Please, um, <laughs> please. Uh, if you're if you're salty, John, start convincing more judges to come to Delvio and judging, um, <laughs> because I, I yeah right. That is one of the things, and I, I think I talked about that at one point, which is you you finding finding people who are good enough to judge, and I'm not saying you have to be a top player to judge. I'm not a very good player. I've not been a good player for several editions um, <laughs> because I don't have the time to put into the reps, you know. Right. But there's a, but it's hard to find players who know the rules really well and have that kind of logical mind for it and and to make the rules arguments and to to really flesh out what the what is supposed to happen on the tabletop. Who don't want to play in the event, you know? Like I went to the first LVO and played, and uh, I had I was supposed to go to the one in in 2016. Not to judge, I was supposed to go to that one and play also, and I didn't. Um, so, I mean, I don't think there's a judge on the team who wouldn't, you know, deep down rather play in the event than judge it. Um, but, you know, we agree to do it, and, and we, we, we view it as part of our job, kind of, to do that for, for Reese and the team. And uh, I think that it, it's difficult to find people who will want to do that. So, I mean, yeah, we definitely could use more people to help us. Absolutely. That'd be great. If you're interested in it, awesome. Um, and, but there needs to be also, if we're going to do this where we want this thing to be pro, then there's also going to have to be a way to get judges. I don't want to say a certification process, but Magic the Gathering has one. So, I mean, why not? Like there's got to be some type of a way to credential the judge. You know, I'm a teacher. So that obviously is the terminology I use would be a credential for it. But like, there has to be some way to state that this guy or this girl is legitimate to judge major events. You know, I mean, we, it doesn't have to be like, hey, you have to get this thing to, to judge your local RTT, but that's another aspect of it that, that you kind of touched on there that I think is important to, to recognize that um, there there's a lot of moving parts to this, and the people who want to put it together will have to acknowledge those moving parts and really hunker down and get into the what those moving parts would need to be and how to do them. And, uh, you know, finding good judges who are willing to do that uh, is going to be one part of that puzzle, too. But I, I mean, I the idea of a pro tour or like an a pro invitational event, the world championships or something like that to go along with all these opens, that's great. I mean, Nova has this invitational to go along with its open, and that's awesome. I think that's a, a great format to have. Uh, yeah, and and so, I think I think we've already said enough about that format and um sure and and the judge professionalism and and I think uh, a credential program for judges, uh, I've personally thought about a ton i thought about maybe spearheading something like that and just getting together all my to contacts and just saying like listen there's no reason why we can't get like the best quote judges 40k judges uh and then provide a list to tos who ask for it right and and with locations and contact information like that would be the first step um i haven't done it because i don't really have time um but i I don't see why why gw couldn't do that or why uh frontline gaming couldn't do that it's definitely a very possible thing um and then after that you have of course more problems like like how do you determine if they're a good judge or bad judge 
Um, but I don't think that's as necessary because there are terrible level one magic judges. They're like, how did you <laughs> like, like I've anyways, not to shit on magic judges too much, but, um, no. but yeah, so now I, I want to, I want to leave you guys before we close off this segment. Uh, I do have my own barriers for making 40 K pro go pro um, that we can address as a community. Um, but I want to leave you guys with two quotes. Uh, the first quote being from John's article, uh, Mr. Brandon Kading said that, um, who's a, a well-established tabletop gaming, uh, uh, not celebrity, but uh, uh, I guess um, person. Yeah, he's really well known in certain certain circles for right. for miniature gaming. Yeah. So so he said that it's very possible to establish a series of social interactions that allow us to cleanly play the game to a standard a majority of players and judges would find acceptable. And I, I agree with him. I think he summed up everything we just said. Mm-hmm. Is that that it's it's very possible to talk to bring 40k to the next level is, is basically what that quote says and i think john and i both agree with that john wouldn't have put it in his article if he didn't agree with it i think right uh, absolutely so i'm gonna leave you guys with a second quote uh someone someone from let me just pull it up real quick so someone this is Raynad. he's a, a famous hearthstone twitch streamer right so this is a guy who spent 10 to 12 hours on Magic the Gathering online, barely scraped a living, switched over to Hearthstone, immediately got thousands and thousands of Twitch streamers. Now he's um, <laughs> re- relatively famous. Um, mm-hmm. But but he says that uh, that streamers, that the streamers are more professional than Hearthstone players because uh, if you had a choice between being a good pro player and having a sex- successful stream, I think having a successful stream is infinitely better in all sorts of ways, uh, but um, some people, it's not. It's just a very sad case. It goes on to other stuff, but essentially, he says that um, if you had a choice between being a good pro player, a good pro Hearthstone player, and being a good pro Hearthstone streamer, um, you would want to be the streamer every time, and that's because the stream is what draws people in. It's what it's where the money is at. It's it's creating a, a an event, right? It's creating a a spectacle for people to watch. And I think that's something that we should take with us. Um, when we think about watching a 40k tournament, it's not about uh, the player. It's not about being a pro 40k player. It's about bringing something to the 40k viewing or the, the 40k audience that excites them, that makes them want more, right? So it's not about 40k pro players. It's about putting on a show for everyone. Um, and that's why Hearthstone streamers are more successful than Hearthstone pro players um, because they focus on that, on, on bringing entertainment to Hearthstone viewers. Right. Yeah, it's the same thing with like any of those games. If the the entertainers streamers aren't always the best players. I mean, you think of like somebody like um like Doctor Disrespect mm-hmm. who streams like PUBG and Fortnite and all that stuff. He's got massive following because he's he's playing a character. You yes. know, he's he's entertaining the people. And then you know you take like some of the best players. And you got guys like him. You know, maybe Shroud, who don't have quite the big following. Well, he's kind of big too. <laughs> but you take players who are lesser well known, who aren't putting on quite a big show, but they're better. That they're not getting the same interaction from their audiences or the same numbers because they're not putting on that show. So there, there's definitely got to be some type of a showmanship aspect to uh, to a stream if you want the stream to become huge, yes. no matter what game you're playing. It could be Hearthstone. It could be Magic the Gathering Online. It could be poker. You know, whatever it is you're streaming on Twitch or whatever. If you have somebody who's a character actor and they're believable and people like it, you're going to get the views. So, having said that, mm-hmm. uh, here are a barrier. Here's a barriers to entry um, that we can fix uh, internally as a community. So, first, a mission statement. A mission statement of a successful professional 40k stream is 
Streams need to be catered to the armchair general casuals and need to be designed to maximize viewership and numbers to draw in corporate sponsors. That is it. That is your bottom line. Nothing else. So, so uh, everything, players, the championship, if you want to make a true pro 40k stream, that's what you need to focus on. You need to focus on uh, the viewers, essentially. Um, and who are majority of players, or the majority of people, they're going to be more casual viewers um, who don't generally have the time to watch, to go to 40k tournaments, um, or maybe they just want to be entertained. Um, because America and a lot, a lot of those big, the NFL, um, the LCS for for League of Legends, they're all built around entertainment. All right, so that's I think that's the the bottom line. That should be the mission statement of any successful professional 40k stream um, in the next five years. So if, if five years from now we have professional 40k streams, I think the most successful ones will be the ones that cater to their viewers the most. Now. One thing that needs to happen for us to get to that level um, is 40k needs to grow uh, in general for creating more casuals. So in the forms of uh, TV show, movies, and when I talk about casuals, because I've talked about casuals on my podcast before, uh, I usually talk about uh, not 40k hobbyists, but true 40k casuals, like dudes who like don't know Calgar's name or like or like barely know what an ultramarine is, um, who who maybe have played one 40k game with their buddies' models and who like have read like two books. But when you ask them, they're like, "Oh yeah, I love 40k. It's one of my favorite games." They're like, "Oh okay, well, what's your favorite Space Marine chapter?" And they can't tell you, or they say ultramarines. They're a casual. So those mm-hmm. guys. So we need more of them. Right. We need more of those guys. We don't have enough of them. Uh, in general, I think 40K is a hobby that is not casual friendly. Um, it, you know, it, everyone I've talked to who, who enjoys 40K is into it and, and would be, in the grand scheme of things, not be described as a casual period um, just because they're so into whatever aspect of the game they are into. So 40K needs to grow. We need a TV show, uh, movies, Netflix special, something that, that brings casuals to 40K. Animated Horus Heresy series. Oh my gosh! Yeah, there's so many things, and that's GW's thing. That's <laughs> that would be amazing. If <laughs> that... you're listening, GW, please give us an animated Netflix 500 episode long Horus Heresy series. Dude, forget forget the Black Library. Just have them do that. Everything. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and this is something less that we can do uh, that we can fix as a community. Though I th- do think we can do our parts um, simply by sharing our Horus Heresy novels. Um, when people come into a, a local gaming store and they're like, oh, cool, what's that? You just tell them what it is. Like, Take the time to explain the narrative to them and explain the story. Right, Just do your part to be a good ambassador for the game. I think, I think that's what we can do to grow 40k, just in general. Uh, and then let GW handle the rest. Hopefully they'll, they'll take it and run with it. Mm-hmm. Second barrier um, is I want to talk about PT Taylor's article, which preaches uh, professionalism as a barrier to hitting critical mass. So critical mass is when we get to the point in a stream when there's so many viewers that there will always be that many viewers and we will just skyrocket. Critical mass, um, there's no going back from there. We're going to have a ton of viewers and it's going to be great. We're not there yet, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but uh, be just be more professional about uh, 40K tournaments. Um Treat it like like it's like it's someone's profession or someone's job. So like uh, some of these TOs that, uh, for example, I'm going to use us as an example for frontline gaming. If we ever had an LVO that flopped, um, that people didn't take seriously, and that we didn't take seriously, we would, as a company, do very badly. We'd have a very bad fiscal year. I don't want to give you guys a number. I'm sure Reese's already a little mad at me for saying something like that, but it's the it's the tr- truth, um, and I think it's pretty easy to assume. 
Um, <clears throat> that's just because the LVO is such a big thing. It's it's basically uh, our career. It's it's part of our our uh, livelihood, right? So it's it's my job. So if when players talk online about uh, like oh I don't like the LVO, like the the people the people who run it are are Nazi trash who who don't care about anything, or they say these really slanderous things about a tournament. Um, mm-hmm. that's not treating that tournament like a professional thing, and they're actually negatively affecting someone who's just trying to do their job, or who's just trying to make a career out of this this event that's theirs, it's their baby. So, so we need. I think we need to. Tra- we need. To, we need to take uh, professionalism to a, a higher level, um, and then some other simple ones. We need a an active, funny, and engaging commentary. I think that's that's obvious. We need someone. Who 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 knows what they're talking about, and we need someone who's really funny. Um, Jeff in Control Robinson talks about this a lot, um, and it, it's his big thing when he talks about um, making 40k go pro. Is you need those guys, like they need to be good and and need to be well liked, uh, and they need to be knowledgeable about the game, and they just they just don't exist right now in 40k. Uh, with the exception of Dave, did the Daves, who I think do a phenomenal job. Um, I don't. I don't really, I don't really tune into live Twitch streams and find myself like, like laughing with the commentators. Um, I, I find a lot of YouTube. There's a lot of YouTube stars who could do yeah. it, do a great mm-hmm. job, but they don't comment on tournament on tournament streams. They don't. They, you know, they're busy doing their thing. They're busy YouTubing, right? So, so Lawrence Baker and Quirk, if you guys are listening to this, you guys would be uh, on the list of dream team commentators who who commentate a 40k game and do a great job. Saying, if you guys are listening to this, <laughs> <laughs> um, we need a pro rig setup. So we need to put on a, sh- a, f- a good visual show. Uh, we need a pro rig with multiple cameras. I know, I know you guys, I know you, John said that we would do a good sh- show with the LVO. And I agree. I think that we do some of the best Twitch streaming at tournaments out there. Um, but we're, we're nowhere near as pro as the Warhammer community setup, no, uh, which has, no. they have their They're own crazy. crazy rig. And even they are not perfect. Like, even they are no. um, small shoes compared to something like the NFL where, where you have, like, hundreds of cameras watching one game and, and a whole mm-hmm. staff. Like, obviously, we're never going to get to that level. But I think a few more roaming cameras, uh, a roaming interviewer, reporter. Yeah, a uh, true top-down yeah, a true top-down pro rig entertainment setup, great with beautifully painted models. That needs I cannot state that enough. Um, I'm not a hobby guy, but I do think beautifully painted models are imperative to yeah. to bring. Well, and good then that's also where that whole idea of like the professional circuit versus the open comes into it, where you can you know guarantee that the people on the professional circuit have these amazingly painted models. Oh, that's whereas a good point. you can't guarantee the same same thing for the open necessarily. But we you know we we are putting a lot of effort into making sure that models are painted to a certain standard. And I think that standard should continue to grow. I'm not saying it's going to, what I'm saying is I I personally I'm not speaking as the LVO head judge right now. I'm speaking as myself. I think that that standard should continue to grow to be more stringent uh, in terms of what your models should look like in terms of painting standards. Um, now, is it going to continue to grow? I, b- I believe it will. I can't speak for certain that it will, but I think it should. And that, you know, that is an important part. I, th- I just want to interject real quick yeah. that, you know, th- that is really important what you're saying. The game's got to look good. It can't just be, you know, things not not fully modeled and and things not on their stands and bases not done and you know uh, you know five different shades of the same color on on a model and you're like well this is three different colors well no that's you know five shades of black or whatever you know it's got to be it's got to be well done um to really grow the game and i th- i just want to interject cuz i thought that was a very important point 
Yeah, and and you know it doesn't it does it's not just models terrain too terrain needs mm-hmm. to be yeah, gorgeous sure. and and like and needs to draw you don't need to have standardized terrain you don't need to have every terrain painted uh, different rainbow colors but also be the same you can have different tables right like you can I'm sure you could put like a pro tour level tournament um in the halls of GW um in their uh at Warhammer at Warhammer World right where they have gorgeous terrain right like. Like I'm sure there might be some unfair matchups, but just the fact that there's so much variance means that their games would just be fair just by just inherent like uh, the tournament essentially. That's what I think. I might be wrong, but the point is is that gorgeous terrain needs to be a thing, and um and I hate to say it, I don't want to call out uh, tournaments by name, but there are some large tournaments who could probably use an upgrade in terms of uh their terrain that that they show and they feature right in terms of their appearance. Right. Yeah. No, so, I agree. Yeah. So, so gorgeous terrain, beautifully painted models, close-ups, all that stuff, creating an atmosphere for the viewers. That's all extremely important. That I think we, as a community, uh, specifically the TO community, can definitely step up on. Um, uh, we need to make attending these big events. So, like uh, actual attendance in an event, we need to make that a big spectacle. So, like we need to rent out not Madison Square Garden, obviously, but you know, like these stages. Uh, or these these venues with stages, and we need to create an actual viewing experience for the players inside. Um, just because if if you have ever like been to like a wrestling match, like I'm not I'm not a big wrestling guy, I'm not a big WWE guy. But the one time I went to a wrestling match with my cousin, who's absolutely who absolutely adored it at the time, uh, it was it was so much fun just being there live. Like I could never watch at the time. I could never watch. I eventually got into wrestling, so so I, I can't say I was never a WWE fan. But at the <laughs> time, I really wasn't. Um, and watching it on a TV screen doesn't compare to watching it in person, right? And that was what really got me. Like I was screaming. It was great. I busted out the popcorn. You know, it was it was great. And I think that that viewing experience. Um, both helps the stream when you hear like people go like oh crap like imagine if when Nick Navadi Tony 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 Grappando like imagine if there had been an <laughs> audience and you'd heard their reaction as they said that like the Twitch stream reaction video is already great enough but like imagine an audience like imagine them going crazy they're booing they're yelling they're laughing like just imagine how much more pumped you'd be just just human nature likes that kind of auditory you know a gratification like when something happens that you like and when other people also exclaim that they like it too by yelling or something like it just pumps up everyone and creates a better experience so i think that we need to make these big events for the attendees a big spectacle not only does that grow the game and make it more entertaining but also brings more more people to spend their money at events, which grows events, which in turn makes the pro rig setup better, et cetera, et cetera. So TOs need to do something about that. And I think players need to, you know, like bug their TOs and be like, hey, can I watch the top table? Can you do something so that I can watch the top table with my buddies? And then they start to cheer too. Like, it, I think that's something we could definitely do. And then finally, the absolute hardest one, the biggest, I think, internal barrier that we can fix as a community is the current 40k community needs to shift its mental focus. Um, in general, the community is too negative towards tournaments and competitive gaming still. Uh, I know it's growing, but the viewership, the the people that, that are our viewers, like our pool, they are still anti, they're still too negative in general. Like if you look at the YouTube comments, comments on bulls, even some comments on frontline gaming, uh, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, the average 40k person is going to be either neutral or negative towards tournaments right so like you got like more more radicals saying that that 
whack tournament players are ruining for the game for them, and that's why they quit. You're getting more of those guys than actual whack tournament players saying that that has that hobbyists need to get out of their game. Like it's a disproportionate amount. And yeah, there's definitely a bit of a diametrically opposed group of people which is unfortunate where there's the people who are like no tournaments are the worst thing ever and then there's people who are like oh fish, those filthy casuals need to stop playing you know or whatever um and that's unfortunate that that's that that uh, the way that is and i think a lot of that's just the nature of the internet and mm-hmm. what you're hearing is the two most vocal sides on both ends of that spectrum um and so yeah finding a way to soften those two tones online in particular might be might be helpful to growing the game quite a bit it's also hard too. Um, Absolutely, yeah. It, it, it's it's, a, it's practically impossible to get people to to change their echo chambers. You know, once they're, they're once they're inside one, particularly on the internet. Yeah. Thanks, Trump. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, even way before him, there's just cheese. Uh, just just a joke. Well, okay. Oh, I know. Yeah. So um, and and I think I think that this shift is already happening to a degree, especially when you get people like uh, Kenny Boucher and the Long War guys, uh, mini wargaming quirk being a mini wargamer, uh, generally a more casual, uh, not generally, definitely a more casual video streaming service, mini wargaming um, quirk going to tournaments and then streaming them uh, with Dave. I think that helps out a lot uh, just because, you know, the, the Long War guys, Kenny Boucher, I don't want to call them casuals because they're not because they put so much time into the 40K, but they are, right. they do... From focus more towards hobbyists who do in general tend to be more disdainful towards tournaments right yeah i uh, wouldn't i wouldn't describe them as casuals i think no, that they're absolutely they're, not they're hobbyists yes but they also enjoy the competitive aspect to a certain extent right and right. and that's proof because kenny boucher you know he performed really well at adepticon juice obviously made the top made day two um <clears throat> and then a mini wargaming quirk is attending these events as well uh and I think the more people that that hobbyists, the more people hobbyists, um, and like uh, people like Uncle Adam too, um, who who uh, who does a, like tabletop minions does a good mm-hmm. job. Who like when he talks about tournaments and he doesn't talk about them negatively. Even people like him who definitely don't attend tournaments, when they say positive things about tournaments, I think that helps a lot. Um, but that's helping. Like all those guys, everyone I just name dropped, keep doing what you're doing. You're you're only helping the game, in my opinion, and helping 40k um, by promoting all aspects of the hobby. Uh, so, good job, guys. Just wanted to give you guys a shout out. But I think that's the biggest the biggest barrier to entry is shifting that focus. Um, I think we're doing it now, but I think we need to do a better job of it at the at the uh, more common average level. Yeah, basically, I agree. So. That's it, guys. That's that's my barrier entry. John, is there anything you'd like to add? Um, any final say? No, I think this this is a great conversation. I think it it really highlights how uh, conversations like this need to need to occur, and and in the community we have to talk about this stuff. If we want forty k to go in a specific direction, you know, we have these goals and we have them in mind, and we, there's a way to get everybody to where we think we should be. And I think that it's important for people to hear. You know, we didn't agree on everything. Uh, yep. But neither of us is screaming at the other one at the top of our <laughs> lungs about how we're wrong or the other person's wrong or whatever, you know. And I think that's important for people to see that, that, you know, at, at a certain level, if you want things to happen, you eventually have to have these discussions and you have to do it in a way that makes sense and is logical. And you have to be willing to come to the table with your ideas, but not with, you know, your ideologies. Right. And and I think, John, I think that that if I were to if I were to take a step back, um, because I'm a bit more of a dreamer and I do recognize that. 
that the stuff I mentioned at the end, the barrier sentry, um, none of that can be possible or making 40k GoPro can be possible without really taking a step back and and realistically looking at the way 40k tournament, the state of for- tournament 40k right now, which I think you hit on the nose. Um, I, I think that we do have a problem with fidelity. Uh, and and it's not we don't have the tools necessary to to overcome it like what the NFL and, and what the N, mm-hmm. um, NBA and like what those physical sports do is we don't have the tools to overcome it right now so so it is very much a fledgling thing that could really ruin uh, tournament right so so it's definitely something we have to address um, and if I were to be realistic I think that it's not going to be easy um, it's definitely more of a pipe dream than a reality which is why I really wanted to bring you on. Um, I, I had these. I originally started this podcast, this particular segment of the podcast, as a solo thing. I was just talking to myself, and I realized, like, even I was starting to sound like way out there. Like, you know, like oh, I was, <laughs> I was talking about you know, like uh, pro, pro, professional s- sponsored players and careers, and I was like, sure, wait right. a minute, wait a minute. That's I, I'm talking about Saldi John's article and not actually speaking to the spirit of his article. Um, so I'm uh, thank you for coming on, John. I, yeah, I do welcome. appreciate it. Um, and thank you for having an engaging conversation with me and writing articles for Frontline Gaming. Um, I think yeah, absolutely. I, I do appreciate what you do, and I appreciate what Adam and Danny do, and what the TFG Radio guys does, and Travis too. I appreciate everything Travis did and mm-hmm. still does. I don't, I don't know, I don't know if, where he's at right now in in terms of his participation level, but I do appreciate him if he does, if he does in fact participate more. And TFG, I don't want to leave him out because he's a big part of TFG Radio. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's one of the founding members and stuff. I think he's just, you know, super busy with a career change at the moment. So, right. um, yeah, we're all hoping that, you know, he finds the time and he gets back into it and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, not not definitely don't want to leave him out. He's a big part of it. Still is a big part of, of, of everything. So, um, I also want to mention real quick that I do the weekly ITC ra- uh, wrap-up articles where I, you know, talk about all the ranking changes and stuff. So if you are interested in all of this tournament talk that, you know, Pablo and I have been doing, check those out because I do a rundown of like different regions and who's leading. And I, I talk about the different people. Uh, and my next one, uh, which probably will be out before this is live, I'm not sure, um, is going to be about the teams. So I reached out to a bunch of the teams in the tops and, and got information from them. So I'm going to do rundowns on like the different teams and how their, or their, or their internal architecture is for their team and what their goals are and stuff oh, like that. So man. it's, it's, it's a really cool series. Um, not to like toot my own horn. It wasn't my idea. Actually, Reese came to me with the idea. Um, and, and I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. I think somebody should do a weekly article about the ITC and the rankings and how they change week to week. Um, and so if you're interested in that kind of stuff, check that out. Uh, it's a really cool thing. Every now and then I'll record one, especially the longer ones and, and put them up as podcasts too. So if you like to listen to articles rather than read them, I do often do that for the article, but I think that's a really cool thing to do, um, and have out there. And again, I'm not, it's not, it wasn't my idea. I'm just the guy that does it for, for FLG. Um, but yeah, so if you're into competitiveness and the competitive play, you should check those out. It's they're pretty cool. Yeah, and if you wanted to listen to TFG Radio more, if you like what John said, uh, if you like his articles on Frontline Gaming, um, if you want to know how awesome Danny is and his articles, uh, <laughs> yeah. where would you find all of this information, John? So a lot of that stuff you can find on tfgradio.com. Um, we actually do a lot of work through our Facebook page. So if you follow TFG Radio on Facebook, you can do it there. Uh, we have a Twitch stream. So we don't do the podcast as just a podcast anymore. We do a live Twitch stream to interact with the audience and then post it as a podcast also afterwards. Uh, you can do that. Every now and then we stream some video games on the Twitch also. And then we're starting to stream a 40K game once a month. Nice. So we'll, we'll, we did one last month and then we ha- we'll, we'll have one coming up for April also. 
Right on. So, guys, uh, I think now I think is a great time to be a tournament 40k player. Um, there's information everywhere. You can go on Frontline Gaming. You can go on TFG Radio. You can listen to my podcast. You can listen to TFG Radio's podcast. Uh, there are multiple. You can listen to the Best General um, uh, Tabletop Tactics for more tactics-focused videos and great battle reports. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to name. There's drop a bunch everyone, of little ones too. Like the like tons of them. you can find them. Like the Veteran Gamers reenlisted as a group down like by Marietta. Yeah. They, there you have a really cool podcast too. This is more like guys drink have drinking and being funny and stuff but they do a lot of cool tactic stuff too and so there's all kinds of podcasts for like everybody's different niche you know the or niche whatever you say it uh, whatever it is that you really like in a podcast you can find that for 40k podcast too yes so and you just got to do the searching absolutely and if you need help searching um this is something i've never actually offered you guys which is strange because i always tell you guys my email every time um you don't have to send me list advice if you want to speak to a specific to if you want to know about tournaments in your region um that are happening in the future so i I know the itc the itc tournaments do get posted and talked about on signals but a lot of times players don't really know about um events that are happening like six or eight months out whereas tos consistently come to me and say like hey could you mention my event in milwaukee um it's happening like in november like oh of course um so you can come talk to me if you're looking for tournaments to go to you can come talk to me if you're looking for more content i i have uh not only do i have a large resource of contacts of people to ask um if you have any ta- if you have any tactics related questions um but i also have a large resource of podcasters and leaders in the community so if you're looking for very specific things or if you want to know more podcasts like i would direct you to adam's podcast weekly review on bell of lost souls that's a yeah, great that's a resource mm-hmm. uh you know you can go to tfg you can email me i'll give you uh, i'll give you my stuff my favorite stuff um specific battle reports you know there's i i am i do have a foothold um and a network in this community um and i don't think it's a resource i use enough to help you guys um so email me Frontline Gaming PDPAB at gmail.com. If you have trouble keeping up with tournaments, if you want to get your tournament 40k fix and you don't know where to look, I will help you. Um, it's very easy, especially now, and I think it's very rewarding um, the more you get into it. So email me, or you can email TFG Radio, uh, TFG Radio at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, tfgradio.com and then also TFG Radio on Facebook. Right. So you can you can message them um, and you can really, uh, you know, message Yeah, you anyone. can message us on Messenger on Facebook and, and Adam's usually the guy that answers, but sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Travis, sometimes it's Danny. You know, we all have access to it, mm-hmm. but uh, we're, we're pretty responsive. That's a really good way to get a hold of us. Right. So, guys, there's no excuse uh, for keeping up with competitive 40K content. Hopefully we can grow this. Once again, John, thanks for coming on. You guys are going to see Val and, or you guys are going to listen to Val and Nick talk about Val's list and get into some Nick Nanavati tactics. Val actually, um, as I mentioned before this this segment, Val got a hold of Nick Nanavati and actually, um, you know, is using his services, which I think is really cool. I'm actually looking forward to listening to that. I haven't listened to it yet uh, as of recording this episode, um, but I'm super excited. Uh, and then if you guys liked my idea of the painting, the painting, uh, Basically, the painting article and the painting thing that I talked about in the beginning, uh, let me know. Once again, I just want to remind you guys, um, email me, frontlinegamingpdpod at gmail.com. And that's it. All right, John. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a great time. We'll see you guys at the end of the Nick Nottavati and Val thing. Do you believe the Emperor protects?
Or do you believe a false god sits on the golden throne and death to the false emperor? Regardless of whether you're a loyalist or a traitor, go to www.flyingmonkeycon.com www.flyingmonkeycon.com is Kansas' biggest wargaming convention with Warhammer 40k, Warhammer Age of Sigma, Kings of War, X-Wing, Horus Heresy, Narrative Events. It promises to be an amazing event set on the river of Wichita, Kansas at the Drury Inn. Get your tickets soon, the weekend of June 22nd through 24th. Right here in the air, capital of Kansas. See you there. The hour was getting late. The 2018 Canhammer Team Tournament list submission deadline was coming up fast. I've been going back and forth. Orcs, Tau, Orcs, Tau. None of the lists were good. It's an ETC format, five-man event. Or woman, for that matter. Team events are known for their extreme lists, and the Tau Codex had just dropped. I figured if I was going to make something work, now was the time. The only problem was I'd been going back and forth for days. Literally, was staying up into the wee hours of the night, fiddling about on Battlescribe, messaging various people online. None of them knew what I was talking about, and quite frankly, I don't think I had a single good idea going. I was sick. I had list disease. And I needed a doctor. I needed Doc Brown. Hello? Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you. How you doing, man? I get the impression you're doing well. Yeah, it's, it's going shocking well, I gotta say. Um, uh, I kind of just did this just to do it and see how far I could take it, and it's going insanely well. Like, I had 8,000 views in February on my website, and this month I had 30,000. That's that's crazy, man. Pretty exponential growth right there. So what do you want to do? How do you, how, how would you best like to do this? Yeah, so let's start there. What do you need? Yeah. How do you want it? Like, what do you want me to, you originally asked me to email it. I guess I could just follow your instructions. You can email it. You can text it to me through Facebook. Um, you can send me the Battlescribe file. I'm adaptable enough that I can manage with whatever. Um, so however you prefer, whatever is easiest for you. So give you a little background. I am competing with my beloved team, Cash Money Hammer, in the Can Hammer Team Tournament. So it runs ETC rules, five-man teams. Other dudes on my team will have an Eldar player probably running something close to the LVO winning list. I wonder who wrote that. Actually, you know what, Nick? I gotta say, my friend Conrad, he did not know you or practice in John Naden's basement, and he brought a list very similar to yours. I was proud of him. I was super proud. That was pretty cool. There was one list I saw. It might have been your friend. Um, then I was like, wow, this is like 200 points off of mine. Conrad Motika. Good for him. Yep, yep. Gave him a high five. Anyway, so we'll probably have like, like a Custodes guard mix, likely, and then something chaos, demony, bombish. Is that three? Oh, and then Flyrance. And then we'll have Flyrance. So those are the other lists in the team format. Yeah. And then you're looking for Tal, you said. That's Well, this is where I, I want to eliminate this, right? Like, so I want to, because I, I had Tal in seventh. I love Tal. Well, actually, I, li I liked running Tal. My favorite is Orcs. 
And I figure all of, if, if I can't figure something out for ETC format that works for Tau, because I think there's a lot of things working against it, then I would just run like Horde Orcs. Yeah, Tau and Orcs are obviously very opposite armies. Oh, yeah. I think Tau, a lot of the problems we found with them is just, the units will fly end up being too pricey, and then without fly, you're just too vulnerable to being surrounded in close combat. Yeah, that is exactly where I'm at with it. I was trying to think of like what what's the shit with fly like i was looking at piranhas i was looking at shield shield lines yeah um but those yeah. are 70 points man yeah right now the only thing i've been impressed with the town so far besides the commanders have been stealth suits yep everything else has been lackluster absolutely um i saw an interesting uh list in the uh tiered it forum actually it was kind of built to be an, like anti-fly keyword so you run like, yeah. a lot of riptides just and like that's that's like your anti flyer anti flyrant list, and that that felt nichey. That felt like something that could work. What do you think about that? Possibly, I I think you're trying too hard to to focus on the flyrants with that, because I I don't even know that that'll actually mathematically beat flyrants that well. So I don't know if it even fills the role. But you're also mm-hmm. sacrificing a lot of matchups, and while that's not horrible, uh, especially in a five person team format, it's, you're not going to be able to dodge matchups that well. Yeah, uh, if you do, you're going to put the other four players on the team, and you're not going to allow them to be able to dodge like the one or two bad matches they want. Right. So catering to one person heavily really puts the other four people at a disadvantage, at least in five people teams. Right, right. It was just a thought, man. I'm just throwing all my thoughts. At you. Even this list that I just gave you isn't really a list. It's just a, a smattering of interesting things that I like. This isn't too bad a breed. A broadside, a broadside, a broadside, Fireblade, Shadow Sun, Dark Strider, Marksman, Riptide. Burst of SMS, some stealth suits, some pathfinders, some shield drones. One, two, three, four, five, six for strike teams. So this is a brigade, I take it? Yeah, yeah. And then we have a patrol, a devilfish, a commander, some more fire warriors. Now, why is there a patrol? Is that just to unlock another commander, pretty much? That was the immediate thought, and then I was like, "Ah, oh, breachers and a devilfish, that'd be cool." So that was just, <laughs> that. That was a detachment idea, uh, and I that's see. that's yeah. similar like to the last one, which is unlock the commander, but also get the uh, Sakea set. So I like I like that idea because Fireside Marksman. Which one's Sakea do again? It's that's reroll one to hit. Um, oh, that's good. For but that. more yeah, important, more importantly, it unlocks the um, their uh, their stratagem, which is two uh, CP. And it's one marker light hit on everyone within six inches of a guy mm-hmm. that, you're, that the that someone from that sept can see. Right. Okay. So it looks like a standard town gun line. I mean, you got the bread and butter there. You got tons of shots out the butt, and you got basic screens, some shield drones, a riptide, some broadsides. I mean, you're going to be golden against anyone that relies on running at you with armor saves of some sort. Ah, uh, what you're going to struggle with is things like. Flyman's probably just out of trish in this. I'm not sure if Custodes can handle it, but I imagine that many two-up saves will just stop you in your tracks, like you're just going to hit a wall. It would be about um, And Eldar is probably just going to sit there and not come near you and just shoot you from further away. That's the thing about going with not Borkan, especially like I'm going with... Uh... On this one is the Tau set, which I thought gave me a little bit more. The Tau set will definitely help you in matches against like something running chaos at you, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, you're golden against basic things that are run at you and rely on not to a bomber saves in the thousand ones like custodies, which is most things. But against the the top field, I should call it, I can see you struggling because they typically have ways around just gunline type armies. That's why you don't see Gulliman just walking up the front top tables. Yeah, I, I just wonder in a team format, there's probably room for a gunline. 
There's just probably better gun lines than this, I would gather. I don't know if there actually are. This is a pretty brutal gun line. Like, you might be able to optimize the list more, and I can help you with that, too. As far as gun line in a team format, I could definitely see it. I think, sorry to interrupt you, is I think Tau just give up on kill points. Oh, like you're gonna lose that yes. differential every Absolutely. time. You're gonna lose that every single time. I think if you're gonna play tower, right, you need to look at their team. So let me just give you a quick team that'll take me like ten seconds to come up with: Flyrens, LVO, Eldar, Plaguebrist, Crawlers, Custodes, and call it this Cultists and Zangors and Deep Striking, tons of dudes. Fearless from Epidemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So out of that team, Tau fight the Flyrens. I feel like probably not. I haven't run the math on it, but I imagine Tau shooting Flyrens isn't pretty. There's a lot of strength six and seven. There's not a lot of Strength eight, yeah. And strength six is, might as well be strength four. So then, if you kill like two flyers, and also there's the Molochs, we're gonna pop up deep in your lines, do some mortal wounds, drones, and broadsides, and that stuff, which don't really matter, but. If you don't deal with the Molochs, you're going to get charged by the Molochs. That's not good. That would be bad. So it's, I think it's a wound saturation there. Custodes, I feel like they can either deep strike in your face to avoid getting shot certain one, and then just be like, here is 90 wounds with the two of armor save and toughen six. Now what? And then you're going to kill, like, five bikes. And then... Because five bikes is still five times six times... They have five wounds each? Four, four wounds each. So 20... 120 wounds. Can you do 120 wounds to toughness five? Probably, but can you do 480 wounds to toughness five? Probably not. That's yeah. kind of what it takes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so Eldar. Eldar, like I said, they're just going to sit there out of your range and blow you up and... Spear you in the face. You have no recourse against the soul bursting spears with the quicken and all that. So that's going to end terribly. Chaos, which you're actually probably okay against, to be honest. Like, I can, I have some moves in that game as a chaos player. Tide of Traders is awesome. Fearless is good. I can shoot twice with 40 cultists and rapid fire and I'll kill a lot of guys. But ultimately, I can't really charge you that well because your army is still a gun line at heart. You'll probably win that one. But you might not score that highly because, like you said, the kill point differential is going to be absurd. And I'll probably have board control for most of the game, too. So even if you, let's say, Almost tailing me, not tailing me purely. I'll still have at least like a small loss, not like a huge blowout, because I've scored so many points with the game. So the one game I have played against Tau, I played against 18 style suits, and my god, those things are obnoxious. Um, I think that's a stronger core to a Tau than a Fire Warrior core. Um, they're faster. They're more mobile because they infiltrate. Even if you don't infiltrate right next to the guy, you just you can deploy more freely. Um, I have fly. I don't need to tell you good fly is. Fly is just fantastic. Fly super dope. But then like there, it's like small three man squads of infantry with like relatively small bases, thirty twos. So it's super easy to get all three guys in cover. Um, and then you're rocking two up saves with two ones each at minus one to hit. Uh, and like that's that's really obnoxious to try to move. Like you're not gonna kill that with like effortlessly like you would six fire warriors. Um, granted, they're much pricier than six Fire Warriors, but they also they have a lot more going for them than the Fire Warriors do. Yep. So I think maybe even more than 18, I could see like 30 Stealth Suits being a strong core to a list. Um, especially for a team format where you can kind of polarize your matchups a bit more. Well, you could just own the board if you had that kind of... Like, yeah, you could, exactly. You could run like... Just, I just dropped a, a list that I saw in the Tyranids Facebook group. It's funny, mm-hmm. the best towel list I've seen on the internet today was in the tier group the town groups are horrifying this one the list concept is similar to what you're describing there so he's running about nine stealth suits yeah this is honestly a lot more similar to what i'm talking about um i don't think two riptides is worth it i'm not even sold on my first riptide uh the first one i don't hate because it can be real hits and wounds with the stratagem yeah. and then yeah. you know do the whole thing 
Uh, I still hate hitting on fours, and I hate that it's like 300 points, but it, it's hard to move, especially with drone help. Tulip saves are awesome. The second one, I just screw the second one. You don't need that crap. That's why that first list I showed you had broadsides, not a second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, by the way, is also a bad idea. Yeah, I, I played against two broadsides and I was utterly underwhelmed. I, every time they shot, I didn't even notice. And then, like later on the shooting phase, I'd be like, "Are you done shooting?" And I expected him to point to the broadsides and be like, "No, I have to shoot these broadsides." And then he didn't. So somewhere in the mindless bolts I was taking, I got shot by the broadside, so he didn't even notice. Uh, Unit 3 broadside is pretty cool, because all the buffs you can put on the on the Riptide is the, about the same on the on the broadside, like the uh, reroll wounds all that shit. So yeah. The, the thing is, is that a bro, like three broadsides is basically one and a half Riptides with none of the resiliency. It's exactly. None, none of the movement. Um, like you're, you're relying on zero save. movement and drones to keep them alive. Yeah, it sucks. I hate yeah, Broadside's just not where it's at. I wish they were so cool looking. So look at this list more. I definitely start off by cutting Riptide. I don't even think you want to have any of the Fire Wars. I think you should just skip the Battalion in general for this stylist, especially now seeing it on, on like paper and what it looks like. If you, if I see those like three to five Fire Warriors in an Ethereal, I'm just going to hug them. I'm going to go real deep on oh, yeah. hugging a Fire Warrior oh, yeah. and making your life hell with that. So don't give me that option. I think this army would really stand to just be like all fly all the time. I think Hammerheads will fill the role of anti-tank, which you're probably light on looking at this list now. I'm a big fan of Hammerheads, like Long Strike and two other Hammerheads, all with Ion Cannons and SMS. You actually like that? So they hit on two's base, right? Which means you're pretty much hitting on threes. Assuming Long Strike hasn't just been punked right out of the gate. Right, right. You're going to... You know, put them far away and in cover. The things that are really good at punking long strike from shooting wise are also the things that are good at killing stealth suits. Because trying to kill stealth suits with like bolter fire equivalents is pretty awful. With mm. minus one to hit into cover. I mean, that's where all the bolter type shots are going to go, but it's just not going to be effective. Do I want to shoot some dark reapers at a hammerhead? And it'll take like a ton of dark reapers to kill his hammerhead. Yeah. Or do I want to shoot like dark reapers at stealth suits and? It's not going to be that efficient either because it's going to be taking four saves, but at least I'll see returns on my investment here. Yeah. So I think, especially with like ghost skills also mixed in that list and the one Riptide, I think the Hammerheads have a place there. Interesting. I, I've been talking to Ganyo about it too, Andrew Ganyo. I'm sure you're familiar with the name, and he's I've heard of the guy. He's a former Tau champion as well. He used to love. Yeah, him. yeah. Um, he's also a big fan of the Hammerheads. Some one, some of the lists we talked about, right and I don't think any of us have put it on the table. We've conceptualized like up to six hammerheads just blowing everything up. We've one of the lists that I think might be a real town army is six hammerheads and the rest of your points divided by stealth suits and fusion commanders. And I think at that point you just this is what I do. I'm all in on what I do. And it's very much the team style setting list. I don't know how great it'd be in singles. Uh you're definitely lacking in screens. You're losing like ninety something point stealth suit squads to whatever because th those are your screens but that said you're still hitting absurdly hard your whole army has fly you have a ridiculous amount of shots and with all those hammerheads you have a crap ton of sms so you can you know kill things out of line second or cover and all that yeah yeah in that original lineup of of four lists that you ran down what do you yeah. think that does so much better so yeah i think that list actually matches up well with high chines the the more hammerheads you toss in there the better your fly that's going to be because fly uh, they're not good at killing tanks. They're they're mediocre to awful with shooting at them. Smites, you know, you you can smite a fair bit of down, but if you can catch a smites with your stealth suits, it's not as painful. Uh, and then lots of stretching, rending claws in close combat are kind of fluky because like 
Uh, there's fives to wound. We rolled a wound, but sixes do a ton of damage. Um, so like a flyer will kill a third to a half of a tank in close combat. But if you have, let's say, six hammerheads all shooting twice at three damage each and hitting on twos, because there's no reason for you to do anything in that game besides just sit there and shoot them. How, how are they shooting twice? I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Lehman Russell, they're not shooting twice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that they came from. They should be no. shooting twice. That's, that's, should be, that's yeah, a I, think, point. I think that was a comparison we made. Is like if these guys would shoot twice like Lehman Russell, it'd be like a next level good. But, um, so 66 shots, right? It's going to be yeah. 21 hits is the average of that. It's 18 hits because you're hitting on the twos. Uh, wounding on threes is going to be nine wounds. And they have four up invuls. Let's call it four wounds because I rounded up before. 46, uh, that's, that's about a fly, right? And then all your other shots, let's say you got like 24 stealth suits in there, plus your SMS, that's probably another fly rent. The two fly rents, I don't know if that's enough to win that attrition. Well, you also the melt the fusion commanders, and those guys are badasses. So those might even down a third fly rent, depending on some invuls. Or those guys are going to kill all the Molochs for you. That's what they're actually going to do. Yeah. Because you don't want to waste melt the guns into invuls. I think that's a winning exchange rate, honestly. Especially your stealth suits can screen out super far, so your hammerheads take zero damage turn one. So then you're going to lose like three squads of stealth suits turn one just right off the bat to flyerants. So then you would turn by killing another two flyerants. So by the time the hammerheads start having to fight the flyerants, I guess when the flyerants finally reach you, they all, there's only like four left. Yeah. So I think that actually is a winning exchange. Hmm. Interesting. And also, being that you can deploy your stealth suits 12 inches away from anything, um, do they have to be out of the deployment zone? Do you remember? I think it's anywhere outside of 12. Here, I can pull it up. If it's anywhere outside of 12, including the other guys in the deployment zone, you could probably shoot and charge with them turn one, assuming you get first turn, because he's going to reserve all his firearms, because he doesn't get shot by him and it's going second. So he's not, allowed, not allowed to be in, in your opponent's okay. deployment zone. I don't think it's going to be possible then. But depending, maybe in Dawn of War it could be, or Pointy Dawn of War it really could be. You could boost your Cold Stars up 40 inches and just have them stand in places. And then you could have your Stealth Suits all just move up and charge random Spore Mines that are going to auto-die and consolidate free 6 inches. It's possible, I have not run, don't run the math list, and it depends probably how the other guy deploys, but it's possible you can lock out the entire board so the Flyers can't deep strike in. That was that was the experience in that list I, I was showing you that that he found that he was basically backed up so far. Oh yeah, you're gonna back them up so far where they you know they're gonna be in the fucking corner and trying to come out of that is gonna take them days and days and days, which is why I think it's a winning battle because they don't get to hit your heavy hitters until like yeah. turn four, turn probably turn three, turn four. Yeah, and fly are eighteen other, inches. That's that's what they get. It, the guns don't even matter to you. It's really the, the combat, and they're not hitting you in close combat for turns. And you're also gonna crush the flyers on the kill point mission, assuming they took rippers and stuff, because you're gonna kill all that effortlessly. So I think that's not bad for that. Let's move on to like. Eldar. I don't. I don't think that this is really gonna solve your Eldar woes. But to be honest, I don't. I've always said this when I was playing Eldar at LVO, and shortly thereafter, when everyone was asking about Eldar, the more you invest into shooting, the worse your Eldar matchup is gonna get because Eldar just don't care about guns. Why do you say that? The modifiers to hit, coupled with the durability of the serpent, coupled with quicken and soulburst, and the ability to just neuter whatever guns scared them at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their ability to just always get the alpha strike off. And then also the fact that fortune protected spears are two up, three up, five up from shooting. Oh, they just don't care about guns. Fair enough. Also, rangers exist. Fuck yes. rangers. The more you point, points you put into guns, the worse it's going to be for Eldar. So I don't know if Tau 
can beat Eldar in the current world. And then Custodes and Guard. Well, I think let's go to Chaos real quick. I think you're going to annihilate a Chaos army. It's because everything is fly, and that's Chaos's basic tactic for how to beat anybody is trap people. Yeah, just hold on to them. It's yeah, like and, um, Bad Chaos, a.k.a. Orcs. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So then Custodes and Guard, uh, I think you'll do wonderfully against Custodes because they are mediocre at killing tanks in combat because strain six just isn't that great and they're useless at it in shooting because bolters don't do anything i mean not to say like if a bunch of bikes charge a hammerhead the hammerhead's gonna live but like if a bunch of bikes charge a hammerhead and then get shot by five hammerheads yeah you, you've won that exchange so i think it'll be fine there that's that was that team you just that talus beat four out of five of that team not the only one didn't beat was lr yeah and Eldar's now, gonna wind up in a lot of mirrors. Yeah, Eldar Eldar's wants to be the bully in the pairing set. Eldar and Flyrens both want to just sit there and be like, you can't defend with this because we'll just bone you with Eldar or Flyrens. And they kind of want game theory that you'd self down. And you, if it's game theory properly, you're gonna play Eldar versus Eldar or Flyrens versus Flyrens or some combination thereof. Yeah. If it's paired properly off, I should say. Uh, another thing to look at with Tau is Vespids. So then Vespids. Uh, they add some AP to Tau, which isn't a problem with that Hammerhead list I have. That Hammerhead list shoots three three trillion AP shots, but um, mm-hmm. for a lot of Tau armies, AP is a real issue, and Vespids solve that and have fly. Uh, granted, they're a little pricey for their durability, but they deep strike at least. So I think Vespids are really underrated for the Tau army. They fill a niche at least. Yeah, they they might they might very well do, but I don't know. Uh, eh. Nah, not feeling them. I, no, I mean, they're, they're not like I'm telling you to play Vespids. They're just, you know, they they have a role that isn't shouldn't be looked over at least. They could. I just, yeah, fear that they would just drop and get murdered. As always. they probably will. I would use them as like screens, like secondary screens, kind of like swooping hawks. How I wouldn't use swooping hawks so much to clean up units in the backfield and stuff. I personally would use swooping hawks to just be a, a deep striking screen. The last thing I'd like you to talk some sense to me about, and then I'll let you go, sir, is is I feel everyone has gravitated towards trying to get as many CP into these talus as possible, just right out of the gates. Yeah. And then, obviously, that's not something you can do if, you know, you're leaving Fire Warriors and, and, and stuff like that at home. Right. What do you feel about the Tau dependency on CP? Do you think it matters? I don't think Tau are that dependent on CP. I think that I think it's a byproduct of people seeing Fire Warriors are cheap and I, I want to take these HQs and their commanders or they're super cheap. So it's super easy to get battalions. And I think people also see, oh, I have cheap heavies in the form of sniper drones. I have cheap elites in the form of marksmen. Yeah. And I have cheap fast in the form of... And they're not, and they're, none of them would seem to be terrible. Like, like the, no, no, the, the, it's, the, it's the, like you'll get a balanced, okay yeah. army out of yeah. just making a brigade out of Tau. And they'll incidentally have 12 CP. I don't think people are doing that consciously because, like, I need CP to do this, 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 this. Like, a chaos list, when I design those, every CP is, is like, gold to me, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I go out of my way to take Abaddon to, just to get two more CP. Double battalion, triple battalion, all that matters to me. I don't think Tau players care about their CP like that. Like, you're going to spend one to make your Riptide better. You're going to spend one to help your marker drones. Maybe you'll shoot twice with a stealth suit unit. Actually, I mean, all that... Like it's I sorry to interrupt. Like it's like it's really actually once you get rid of that riptide. Yeah, like <laughs> it's you're not really the riptide, time. so you have something to spend your CP on. Yeah. You know? It's like yeah. you don't need CP for anything. Honestly, the tab player's biggest use for CP is going to be rerolling a fusion blaster damage yeah. or the wound roll or something. Yeah. 
uh, it's probably going to be most common. So I don't, I don't think you need to go out of your way for CP at all. And I think it's just a byproduct of kind of less experienced players not realizing you don't need to and realizing the weaknesses to the fire warriors and stuff. CP is sexy, wrapped. man. All right. So here we go. Wrap, wrap up. Final analysis, doctor. Um, yeah. Should, should I just try, try and make the best gun line I can or just get the boys out? I mean, for your team, it's a whole other conversation. Yeah, what I recommend for your team scenario is it's going to be do what I just did, you know, make a, Make up a team of five guys and five lists and split, switch it up as much as possible. It's really easy to get shoehorned in kind of what the meta is, Flyer and Seldar, et cetera, especially with five-man teams. But people are going to go nuts. You're going to see like seven Dark Talon armies, 81 Zangor and Leighton. Sure. Pick those kinds of armies. Just polarize the crap out of it and try, run, try running your Tau army and your Orc army into all those and just see which one objectively comes out with the best numbers. Like. I, I expect Tal will come out with better numbers with numbers than it works against the the meta as it is right now. Yeah, especially um, naming those top five lists. Exactly. Like, that won't be every team there, but it'll be the teams. You but the ones beat. you're worried about, I yeah. imagine. Yeah. So, like, to list off orcs against the same ones just to give you the synopsis, like really orcs firing. That's a blowout city for the orcs, especially with a uh, fairly psychotastic killing your weird boys too. Custodies oh. and guard. Custodies. I can't even imagine what orcs do because actually smites might get you there. But Hurricane Bolts are just so bad. Yep. That one's interesting. Orcs versus Eldar. I can't see Orcs beating Eldar. I can't see Tau beating Eldar either, so that doesn't really matter. Right. Chaos. Chaos. Uh, depends on the Chaos variation. All of my variations, I'd feel super comfortable taking on Orcs, but I run more close combat than most. I think Orcs will probably be fine against the shooting ones. Yeah. That kind of depends. I'd put that at, like... Depending on list, like how how deep you want to go with your analysis. Yeah. If you're expecting a lot of chaos, you do list full of obliterators and stuff like that. Orcs will be fine. If you're like what I do, I run exalted champions and stuff, so I can reroll the wound. So like 40 cultists fighting twice, reroll the hit, reroll the wound, press into vets. That'll kill like 70 orcs. Okay. Um. Yeah, so it bad. depends on your kind of which variation you're talking about. The last one was a lot of playbird scrawlers. Yeah, orcs are not beating playbird scrawlers. No. 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 I've been there many times. They've ruined my they've ruined my day multiple times. Well, uh, doctor, this has been. Uh, it, it turns out I have cancer. Uh, yeah, you have cancer. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. It's not lethal yet. It can be cured <laughs> <laughs> by investing or waiting patiently for more books. All right. Well, Nick, I thank you for your time tonight. Of course. It was actually super fascinating how how you broke it all out. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and I'll cut it there, and I'll just say, yeah, that's very fascinating. Thank you for that. Cool. Yeah, I no do problem. have an F ton of stealth suits, believe it or not. Well, that makes your life really easy for trying that list out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, <laughs> you got to break down the paradigms, man. You don't want to get trapped in this brigade thinking, and then you just you just yeah, it's options. super easy to kind of limit yourself into this is how things are. That mindset, um, yeah. I'm myself guilty of it, especially like when I talk to my top player friends like Ganyo and Sean and them. If they have a certain mentality of what's good and what's bad and talk about it enough, that'll start to reflect on me and it's hard to, you know, take a step back and reevaluate like maybe there's another way. To do yeah. It. But yeah, I'm glad you found it interesting. You know, I love talking about this stuff so I can do it all day. Well, luckily you're trying to make a vocation out of it. So <laughs> yeah, it looks, exactly. like you, looks like you picked the right one. All right. I won't take any more of your time. Appreciate it. And you have yourself a good evening, sir. Absolutely. You too. Take care, man. And that was the end of my consultation with Doc Brown. I came away with it with a lot of new insights and thoughts about how to build a good team list with Tau and why not to bother bringing orcs. And frankly, I was getting a little bit more excited about running Tau in a different way. 
However, a few days later, I came to discover that one of our best players had mixed up his weekends. And now, I'm playing some sort of hideous Imperial Soup list starring some shield captain custodies, some dudes on some bikes, a couple of their assassin pals, and a few units of scions. It's actually a lot of fun, and considering I'd have to learn the Tau list anyway, why not learn this one instead? And to replace the Tau list? Well, we may not have Tau hotness, but we have a pretty badass-looking Necrons list. And perhaps the most excited Necrons player that's ever existed, which is unusual for a faction of soulless robots. And so thus ends my trip to the doctor's office. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. And if you're ever in a jam like me, never be afraid to ask what Brown can do for you.